Hello everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones show on the Podbreed network and we work with our friends at the Narth subreddit as well. My name is Rob and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times. And my name is Lizzie and I'm watching Game of Thrones for the very first time. You can find us on Twitter and on Etsy by going to both websites and searching for at longestnightgot. That is at longestnightgot. Our title music was provided and produced by friend of the podcast, Edward Thomas. You can find all of his available work in the description. This week, we are going to be discussing Season 6, Episode 8 of Game of Thrones, entitled No One. It was written by series creators David Benioff and Dan Weiss and directed by Mark Mylod. It was first broadcast on the 12th of June, 2016, to an audience of 7.6 million people. Lizzie, what do you make of No One? It's a real mixed bag, this one. There's two disappointing story arc conclusions and one particularly dreadful scene which spoil what could have been a pretty solid episode otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, This, historically, uh, and definitely up to this point in the show, this is my least favourite episode. Um, Right, okay. It beats out um, Cripples, Bastards and Broken Things, Breaker of Mm -hmm. Chains, uh, The Red Woman from earlier this season. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that it might not be my least favourite episode anymore. I think there's one still to come that I like a little bit less. Mm. Um, But I'll have to see when I get there. Um, I have appreciated the lighter tone this season. Uh, more this time actually going round than I have done in previous years, but I think this episode takes it a step too far in some places. Yeah, definitely. I think that Marine is basically a mess this week. Absolutely. I think 100%. the climax of the River Run storylines not that satisfying, and no. the less said about Aya and the Waif, the better <laughs> in my head. Yeah. Having said that, um, the Hound reuniting with the Brotherhood, I think that's quite a nice touch uh, that explains why the Riverlands currently are the way they are. The Mm build-up of the Riverrun plot produces some great moments, like before the end for Nikolai Costa-Waldu, Tobias Menzies, uh, Gwen Christie. King's Landing is great this week. And I think the stuff at the beginning of Arya's storyline this week is really lovely, but it's just the end that causes a big, yeah. a big problem yeah. for me. Tougher girls than you have tried to kill me. You can have one of them. Two. No, 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 no. We're not butchers. We hang them. Hanging? All over in an instant. Where's the punishment in that? They die. They all bloody die. Except this one here. In the Riverlands, Sandor Clegane tracks down the members of the Brotherhood involved in slaughtering the villagers last week and kills them. He then encounters Beric Dondarrion and Thoris of Mir, who are hanging the rest of the men involved in the attack on the village. They allow Sandor to hang two of the men involved, 
And then they try to recruit Sandor into the Brotherhood, stating that they intend to travel northwards to join the fight against the White Walkers. So, uh, how do you feel about Beric and Thoros returning after almost three seasons away? Very surprised to see him back, even though I shouldn't be, because they gave them an... I feel like they gave them a lot of character in season three, but then, like I say, they've kind of just disappeared before now. And, you know, you've got Beric, who's literally come back from the dead. It seems like a bit of a a waste not to use him. But I, I like that they've kind of left that time, and so you're wondering... What have you been doing all this time that you've just been, you know, missing in action while all of this other stuff has been going on? Basically, since the war's been over, there's not a lot of money in the countryside, not a lot of stuff worth stealing, not a lot of stuff Mm. worth taking, not a lot of justice worth seeking. So, as far as I'm concerned, the Brotherhood have been, in the show anyway, in the books it is slightly different, but in the show... They have been roaming the countryside, having a good time, uh, recruiting people into their little community who then turn out to be dickheads and they hang them. They're judged during Mm. executioner. No one really minds that Beric and Thoros are the guys leading the Brotherhood Without Banners. Seems they've lost their bowman, Angai, at some stage or another. He probably went back to his family at some stage. And the Hound just is a character that we can use to, to drop back in. So, that opening bit with the Hound, I'm not sure I've ever really liked the tone of the scene where the Hound is slaughtering all those guys. I think, like, the the whole, fuck you, fuck you, those are your last words, come on, you can do better than that. Like, it's, I don't know, mm, I don't find yeah. it not funny, but, I don't know, it's just, I think it's just an example of this episode's tone being a bit too light for my liking. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I've got no problem with the show treating death as a bit of a joke because I think it has to treat it in other ways so as to not be repetitive. But I only feel like this stuff gets going when they sit down, the hanging's done, they start chatting, they start quipping and joking a little bit. They, mm. You know, the whole, uh, we all bloody die, except this one here. And little <laughs> yeah. jokes about Beric, the fact that he'll just he just does not die and the hound has technically had a bit of a resurrection in the context of the show that's true but yeah i think the most important thing for me is just that the war is over now in the riverlands there's not a lot going on and so beric and thoros have turned their eyes northwards away from all the petty squabbling in the countryside and towards a more existential threat Mm -hmm. so what other notes do you have about this well, I mean, just on um, just a really quick note on the the death as humor thing, they've done that better this season with um, with the mountain. Yeah, you know, and he just shoves that guy's head against the wall. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult to see how they'll actually survive. You know, the forces of evil beyond the wall because there's, well, there's not very many of them, hmm. and we've not seen much of their fighting ability other than Beric. Yeah. So, you know, you've got one guy who can presumably do something, but aside from that, if you're just this rambling band of misfits, I don't know, like, I don't rate your chances. Do you think they might maybe, I don't know, go, maybe not join the Night's Watch, but help or hang about on the wall or something like that? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, I don't think they'd join because I think their their whole thing is being outsiders they're not part of that world of 
you know, where you've got the Night's Watch and you've got the the Lannister family and the Stark family, etc. They're they're kind of aside from all of that, hmm. and they have been from well since the first time we saw them. But um, yeah, it's not a very enticing prospect. But like you say, what else is there if there's no war in the countryside? Even though one seems to be brewing, yeah, it it does seem like yeah, maybe your energy is better spent up north, where at least there's some action to be had. Furthermore, after much prayer and reflection, the Crown has decided that from this day forward, trial by combat will be forbidden throughout the Seven Kingdoms. The tradition is a brutish one, a scheme devised by corrupt rulers in order to avoid true judgment from the gods. Cersei Lannister and Loris Tyrell will stand trial before seven septons as it was in the earliest days of the faith. Seven blessings to all. In King's Landing, the faith militant arrive to escort Cersei to see the High Sparrow, but Cersei refuses to go with the members of the faith, and that leads to a fight during which the mountain brutally kills one of the sparrows. Cersei then attends a royal announcement from Tommen, who declares that trial by combat is to be outlawed across the Seven Kingdoms. And with the announcement over, Kyburn reveals to Cersei that a rumour she asked him to investigate has uh, turned out to be true, or truer than she initially expected. So this is where the uh, woke up and chose violence meme originated, the uh, choosing yeah. violence. Yeah. Did you uh, yeah. did you have a little moment, a little Leo pointing at the screen moment there? I did. Well, that's the thing. I didn't know if that quote existed before this. It seems to. Well, I think you know this choose violence thing. It, it seems to have originated afterwards, if not originated okay. from. If you know what I mean, it's uh, it's something yeah, that's yeah. come about later. But apparently, it seemed people seem to credit the show with the choose violence line. It was it was in the it was in the you haven't seen it obviously, but um it was in the trailer. The line right, is yeah. audio man to step aside or there will be violence. I choose violence. That was when the trailer has, you know, the the typical quiet start and then suddenly about a third of the way through there's a sudden gear change and all of a sudden yeah. we're we're seeing shots of combat and running and fighting and stuff. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I think this is the best bit of the episode this week. In King's I agree. Landing. I agree. Yeah, what, what, what do you make of it? Well, um, on our season five review, we talked about Cersei and her naivety when it comes to how she goes about planning. Yeah. And yeah, this week's no different. She seems to think that an attack from Gregor Clegane might be enough to keep the Faith militant at bay. And for a while, it seems like she was right. For a while is like in big, massive fucking air quotes there. Because <laughs> much like for a while, giving power to the High Sparrow and putting the Tyrell 2 in prison was a smart move and a way of restoring some of her authority after the events of season four. The problem is, um, are we calling him the High Sparrow or the High Septon at this point? L- let's just say the High Sparrow for, yeah. you know, for continuity's sake. He's not only much more cunning than Cersei is, but also has her son, the king, in the palm of his hand. So mm. the High Sparrow not only gets Tommen to remove Cersei's best chance at regaining freedom, but also communicates through Tommen a completely different but equally feasible justification for abolishing the practice of trial by combat. So just like in season five, Cersei's failed to recognise the High 
the High Sparrow's next move and might have to live with the consequences, but it might, it looks like she might have another trick up her sleeve. Well, I love that scene because there seems to be an actual physical barrier between Cersei and Tommen the whole time. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. There's... There's a, I don't know why it makes me think of it, but there's a there's a shot uh, from the fifth Harry Potter film, I think, which is the film mm. where Dumbledore purposely distances himself from Harry because Dumbledore is worried that if he is too close to Harry, then the darker side of Harry will come out. It's one of those where if you've watched the first four movies or read the first four books, you'll understand the context of that. Whereas with this, it feels like Cersei is trying to get to Tommen while Tommen just kind of walks away and disappears into a crowd. And there's yeah. always someone in the way. She goes to try and talk to him, but Kevin stands in the way. Then Kevin mm-hmm. says, you can stand with the other ladies of the court over there. Thank you very much. And then when Cersei tries to get to Tommen afterwards, Tommen's already out of the room, which is something that happens in this Harry Potter film I'm thinking of where Harry's shouting after Dumbledore as he kind of disappears into, into the crowd. And then when he when the when the people part and you think you'd be able to see Dumbledore, obviously he's completely gone out of shot with a bit of camera trickery there. But mm-hmm. yeah, a little note about this scene. Um, I have uh, two degrees of separation from someone who was fairly prominent in this scene. This is the closest I think I ever got to uh, Game of Thrones, as it really? were, apart from the extras who we've interviewed on the show. So okay. the moment where it is revealed that the... Trial by Combat has been outlawed, which is a, an amazing twist, by the way. A lovely, only a tiny twist. Yeah, it's great. But it's a, li- yeah. it's a cool turn to the story, I think, with a very kind of, yeah, it's got a lot of logical reasoning behind it. I really, uh, really enjoy that. Cersei, like I say, full-on lost Tommen now. That's her last son, her last boy. The High Sparrow has completely wrapped him up. And when they make that announcement, there's a shot on a girl in the crowd uh, who's got kind of dark brown hair. And so, right, she is actually from Stockport. Really? Yes. Um, she is the girlfriend of, or I, I, I'm not sure of their situation now, but obviously listeners may know or may not know of a semi-popular band from the UK known as Blossoms. Yes. They've been much bigger in the UK than they have been internationally, but they're, they're, they're also from Stockport, uh, mine and Lizzie's hometown, where we, where we do the podcast from. And I don't know if they're still together, but this girl was the either it were at the time was definitely the the partner of a member of Blossoms, and an ex partner of mine went to college with members of Blossoms, and through that connection did a brief photo shoot with her. My my ex partner was into photography, and so. Hmm. They didn't. They weren't exactly friends, but they knew each other, and they. I find it kind of cool whenever she pops up, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> two two degrees of separation from that person. <laughs> nice. And she's right there, front and center. She's the one with uh, dark brown hair who looks. She's right in the center of the frame, and she looks most shocked by the uh, the revelation that trial by combat has been has been outlawed. I have a question for you, Lizzie, as always, that I will not answer. I will put your hand on the shoulder, but I'm going to ask you what you think it is anyway. What do you think the rumour is that Cersei has asked Kyburn to investigate? Because remember, earlier this season, yeah, she assigned all of the sparrows, uh, on the sparrows, she assigned all of the little birds to Kyburn 
And so what do you think he's been using them for? Hmm. I, well, I wonder if maybe it's something to do with Lancel, just purely because Cersei probably knows more about Lancel than any of the others in, well, other than Tommen, in the, the High Sparrow's cabinet, shall we say. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if there's maybe some sort of relationship going on inside the um, the sparrow's nest, and it's okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Something political that she can whip out when she's uh, when she's on trial, possibly. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sort All of right like um, a, a, an Uno card that you could just reverse. <laughs> Why don't either of you ever drink? Unsullied, never drink. Why not? Rules. And who made these rules? Your former masters? Those miserable old shits didn't want you to be human. Have a drink with me. And you? What's your excuse? I have tried wine before. It made me feel funny. That's how you know it's working. Here's to our queen. Anyone not drinking is disrespecting our queen. In Marine, with the Red Priests spreading pro-Daenerys propaganda, Tyrion escorts Varys to the city's harbour, and Varys departs to secure more allies for the army. And later that day, Tyrion, Missandei, and Grey Worm are bonding over drinking games and jokes, when a fleet of ships sent by the Slave Masters begins to attack the city. And as the fleet continues to bombard the city into the night, Daenerys returns on Drogon to the top of the Great Pyramid of Marine. Oh my god, this is rubbish. This is just bad. <laughs> I think I think like this is one of the few very 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 small amount of things in Game of Thrones that I just watch it and go, this is just bad. Like th- it, th- it this really just is. isn't finished. Like and it's for not. a show no. of this size and for a show where the production and the display is always immaculate, this mm. just feels like I don't know, they ran out of money. There are loads of shots in this where there's like there's very obvious cutarounds because they clearly like either ran out of money or ran out of time. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if these were the last shots they did of the season, or they just needed a bit. They needed something to just kind of fill in the gap because the episode wasn't was coming up a bit short. But I, oh, well, it's not a short episode. No, this it episode isn't because it's like fifty eight minutes. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. What do you make of the marine stuff before I start going on about it? No, I agree. That scene with Tyrion encouraging Sandy and Grey Worm to drink, it might be the worst of the entire run of the show so far. I'm struggling to think of others. Yeah, it's high. I think close. it's high. Yeah. yeah. But, like, it's no secret that Tyrion is quite a bibulous character, but I didn't think he'd be the sort to egg other people on like that. Hmm. In a scene that doesn't add anything to their story arc, and it takes up far too much time in an already quite bloated episode. It just goes on and on and on. All the jokes fall flat. I don't like creepy Uncle Tyrion. I, I don't want him here. It's not it's not the Tyrion I know from, like, season two. Hmm. You know, it just... It, I don't know. There's something. There's been something kind of off about Tyrion all season. He seems to be... Like, we've had another scene like this, right? With... Um, Earlier Grey in the Worm season, the yeah. Where yeah, they, and it's yeah. just kind of awkward. And yeah, that's that's not you... That's not who you are. Well, in an in an attempt to engage with the scene, I think over the years I have 
rationalised that it's supposed to show progress in the relationship between the three of them because obviously they couldn't talk to each other because it mm. was so awkward in that third episode. But in the eighth episode, there's a bit of progress where they're enjoying each other's company now. And, you know, so maybe... And the joke where the Lannister, Stark and whoever walk into a bar, like, that's... Fair play for them making a slightly funny joke out of an entirely fictional universe. Like, that's that's pretty good. I think, you know, that's... No, that's not, not awful. <laughs> that's It's not awful. It, it, it's, it's It's okay. But, it is awful. But like, it's it's terrible. I mean, it's not a good joke, but like, the joke works logically, I think, and you can sort it, of go. Hmm. But yeah, okay. So um, <laughs> it's just there, there are points in the scene where I'm just like, what's going on? Like the yeah. the the bit with Grey Worm where he's like, I make joke, and then Missandei's like, more jokes, and I'm like, what the fuck is this? What TV show is this? <laughs> And every now and again, I mean, it's it's just something that happens where, like, every single TV show's got one. Even Mad Men, the most exquisitely and finely tuned, exquisitely written and finely tuned TV show I think I've ever watched. Even that mm. has an episode where I think the characters are slightly overdrawn and the tone feels slightly off, which is the one in season three, I think, or early in season four, which is the Chrysanthemum and the Sword. But yeah. even that yeah, still has right. even that still has the episode that even that still has the scene where Sally tries to cut her own hair. Um, oh yeah, true. So yeah. like, but so but it's just that one. It's just that one episode where I feel like it just feels like two episodes squeezed together a little bit because they're trying to be they're trying to exaggerate a couple of things. But the, like this is Game of Thrones one for me where the tone of the episode just feels at odds with all of the other episodes in the show. And mm-hmm. I know we've acknowledged that there's been a slight tonal change this season, but I think there have been moments this season that have really reminded me of season three and two in terms of yeah. the you know the the shifted the the refocus on the Riverlands and the the speed at which the story is moving reminds me a lot of season four after season five really slowed things down. There's a few mm-hmm. more things like that, but this just, I cannot fit this scene anywhere else in the show and help, it, it, it doesn't blend in to the show, this marine stuff. Yeah. It really does not fit. I think that the I make joke, more jokes, like Masande getting giddy and drunk off like two or three sips of wine, like how long yeah. have they been sat there? And I remember watching this scene for the first time, and to be honest, a lot of people had similar complaints to you about the way that Tyrion is not really himself at the moment. I, as someone who really tries to engage with what the writers are trying to put across, because obviously I love the show, I say that it's because he's somewhere else and so he can't really behave like himself. Game of Thrones is full of characters travelling to places that are far away from home and not quite adjusting but yeah this it just if anything this just this scene just exposes how poor a character pairing Tyrion, Missandei and Grey Worm is yeah definitely and how much better Varys and Tyrion are because the best bit in Marine this week is just when Tyrion and Varys have that last little goodbye together yeah where you get the most famous dwarf in the world little quip that's that's that that feels like Tyrion to me in a yeah it, absolutely yeah, but yeah. this bit doesn't and then fucking hell the scene where the the slave masters arrive 
Oh, God, you can see them scrimping on the budget in this. The ships look rubbish. <laughs> the ships look terrible. And then the scene at the end where Daenerys arrives, they normally, surely with Daenerys coming back, they would take the opportunity to have this big, like, whoa, yeah, on a dragon, like, whoa, big, another one yeah. of those big Daenerys moments they like. But no, she just sort of walks into a room like a mother walking into their child's bedroom <laughs> and it's, the place is trashed. And then you just see yeah. a little shot of Drogon in the background that looks like, you know, like when you can't draw and you do a seagull in the distance and it's just two lines. <laughs> and it just, yeah, you can tell that they've kind of yeah, run out yeah. of space and run out of money a little bit here. But like it, the whole thing feels like a dress <laughs> rehearsal. Even Rami Javadi, whose music and the tone of his music I think is the most cohesive thing throughout the entire show. Even as the mm. show grapples with new tones, new moods, new atmospheres, as it tries its hand at different things and different kinds of storylines, it's Ramin Javadi's music that keeps it all as a unit. But even his yeah, music in absolutely. this, just I, I don't think it fits. I just, I just mm. feel like it comes from another show. I, maybe it's some stock music, and maybe Ramin Javadi, maybe because it was so late. I, I don't know this, but maybe they did it so late that Rami Javadi had already submitted everything. I, I really have no idea, but it just doesn't feel like him, even if it is him. It's kind of like they say with uh, John Williams in the Star Wars movies, where like the three trilogies of the Star Wars movies are all so different to one another for very different reasons. But John Williams scoring them all, some people often say that John Williams understands the story and the feel of Star Wars better than George Lucas. Um, yeah, yeah. And I imagine some people would say that about Rami Javadi as well, but not this time just don't think any of his musical cues fit yeah and i th i feel like with um with marine this week it's like they had it's like they had four bullet points they've got you know varus going back to westeros the masters arriving so three actually um varus going back to westeros the masters arriving on the ships and daenerys returning yeah and it's like all they knew is that, okay, we have to hit these three beats, but we don't quite know how we're going to do that, and we don't have very much time. Yeah. So we need to, you know, wrap this up pretty quickly. The money's a bit tight, so, yeah. Figure it out, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. it just, it's, like you say, it doesn't feel like this show. It feels like, um, I don't know, like a low-budget equivalent. Yeah, it, I, I was going to make a mean joke there about um, the successor. So the uh, shows that have been labelled as uh, successors to Game of Thrones, but I won't. The do many, that. many shows. I, I won't that do have that. Been... I won't make. I, yeah. I won't make joke about those uh, about those TV shows. <laughs> this is Game of Thrones non-union Mexican equivalent. <laughs> yes, directed by uh, what is it, Senor Spielbergo? <laughs> yes, that's the one. <laughs> and then, yeah, I imagine afterwards they are doing a bit of. We did 20 takes, and that was the best one. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> oh, dear. Lady Sansa desires to take her ancestral seat back from the Boltons and assume her rightful position as Lady of Winterfell. With what army does she plan on taking Winterfell? The Tully army. Perfect occupied at the moment. I'm sent here to reclaim River Run, currently defended by the Tully rebels, so you can see the conundrum. The Tullys are rebels because they're fighting for their home. Riverrun was granted to the phrase by royal decree. As a reward for betraying Robb Stark and slaughtering his family. Exactly. Shouldn't argue about politics. You're a knight, Sir Jamie. I know there is honor in you. I've seen it myself. I'm a Lannister. Don't ask me to betray my own house. 
At Riverrun, Brienne and Podrick arrive and observe that a siege is underway at the castle. While Podrick reunites with Bronn, Brienne and Jaime negotiate. If Brienne can convince the Blackfish and the Tully army to surrender the castle, Jaime will allow them safe passage north to fight for Sansa. The Blackfish, though, while sympathetic to Brienne's message and Sansa's need for more men, he refuses to abandon his home. Jaime then coerces Edmure Tully into surrendering the castle by threatening to kill his newborn son, and after a brief standoff, the Tully army follow Edmure's commands and give up the castle. With the gates now open to the Lannister forces, the Blackfish helps Brienne and Podrick escape, but stays back to fight himself. Jaime finds out that the Blackfish has been killed as Brienne and Podrick sail away. Um, this starts off well and then goes the way of Marine, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. I love that quieter theme between, you know, Jamie and Brienne, as much as I've I've not put it into very good words, but it's like this duality of Jamie where he's at once trying to be the sort of good guy, but he's also having to beat down the doors of someone's home to get it back because, you know, he has he has to serve his duty. And I think Brienne sort of recognises that, but she's powerless to do anything about it, really. And she can only fulfil her own duties. Yeah, I think that you've raised a really interesting point there, which is that Jamie's happy, happy to be Lannister Jamie and happy to be I love Cersei Jamie in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Whenever Brienne's not around. But then whenever Brienne's there, it's kind of like he has to put on airs a little bit mm. and make sure that the surrender is bloodless and to put his personal grievances aside and all of that. But hey, Jamie and Brienne, back together again. And then not together again at the end of the episode. But uh, yeah, first Mm. time I think they've been on screen together since the midway point of season four. So it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, Um, it's a nice reunion. One of two reunions, actually. Um, Bronn and Podrick. Yeah, which I thought was quite nice. I thought that was, of the the more jovial scenes in this episode, I think that was the, the stronger one. Yeah, I liked it. Kind of gave you the sense that Bronn's sort of hardened up a bit, and <laughs> Podrick's a bit freaked out. He's like, "Fucking hell, who are you? Get off me!" And, and um, yeah, Bronn's trying to sort of toughen him up a bit, which he probably needs. Yeah, and that it kind of reminded me a little bit of, funnily enough, uh, kind of ironically, because we've just said how much bits of this episode don't remind me of earlier seasons. This reminds mm. me of season two, season three, where these characters are on screen together. Jamie and Brienne, Podrick and Bronn, and there's loads of Lannister war tents in the background. There's people going into war tents and having conversations and difficult negotiations, and we're sort of back into the... I think, for me, this is the last breath of the War of the Five Kings. This was the one bit of territory that was a bit... You know, there was a debate over who should own it, and now that debate is thoroughly over. The, The Tully army have basically all just gone back home... The Lannisters are now in full control of River Run. It's not really a conversation anymore. The conversation is over. So, yeah, to be back in these kinds of environments again, these kind of muddy war councils, it's cold, the wind is blowing, there's a siege outside of a castle, we're, at, we're, we're in the Riverlands again. The, yeah. We're at River Run where... Uh, Hostatully's funeral was and Rob Stark and Catelyn all went and that was where Catelyn mm-hmm. stared out of the window and worried that she'd never see Bran and Rickon again and she yeah, was yeah. right. Yep. But yeah, it just it, there's a nice uh, aesthetic and a nice feel 
I think, to all of this. I think Jamie and Edmure's scene is really worth the entry fee. Um, it's mm. something that Edmure notices, and it's something that I've been wondering about uh, with regards to Jamie's characterization and how you feel about it. There is still a darkness inside Jamie, and it beats for Cersei. Yeah. Um, this this Edmure turning to him and saying, like, do you still imagine yourself to be, like, a decent person? Do you, do you think yeah. you're a good person, like, with the things you've done? Like, I know that, I mean, Edmure's not really saying this, obviously, but I feel like he's turning to the viewers a little bit and sort of gesturing towards us and saying to Jamie, these people all think you're decent now. Yeah, yeah. But here you are threatening to kill my kid and trying to steal a castle that's not yours. Mm. And you also killed a cousin of yours and escaped. And yep. you pushed Bran out of a tower window. And Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Going I think all the way back. it's a good point on the map to show that as much as Jamie's definitely a nicer guy these days, there's still that thing in him where Cersei's the... Well, I won't want to put it in terms that makes it seem like as if Jamie doesn't have any agency, because he does, and he chooses to make his bad decisions. But so many of them are, as he says in this episode, are to get back to Cersei, for Cersei. And there's a corruptive influence between the two of them, and this is the Cersei side of Jamie up against the Brienne side of Jamie, and in the end, the Cersei side sort of wins in this episode. I think the the, mm. the 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 tactics that he resorts to aren't typical yeah. of the the Jamie that you would see around Brienne. What do you make of Jamie in this episode? Is stuff with Edmure independently of Edmure? Yeah, I mean, you could even say not the Cersei side, the Tywin side. I was just going to say mm, he's always yeah. a Lannister. No matter what you do, he's always a Lannister. You can you can leave King's Landing, but you can't take King's Landing out of the men. Yes, yeah. I didn't I didn't phrase that very well, but you know what? Everybody I mean. knows you what know you what mean. Say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But no, you're right, and it's like like earlier in the season as well. You know when Jamie goes charging up the stairs to meet the High Sparrow, like he's the the hero, literally on a white horse. It's like, hold on, are you supposed to be the good guy when? given everything we know about you, like, sure, like you say, you are better than you used to be, but that doesn't mean you're a good person. And, you know, this... I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about this heroic quest to get back to Cersei, his one true love, who is also his sister. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, like, shades of grey and so much complicated stuff about Jamie And... I think Ed Muir kind of knows that he's got to the bottom of that. He's he's prodded at Jamie just enough that he can sort of start to twist the knife a little bit and get some different reactions. Hmm. It's interesting that you've noted that about Jamie feeling like he's the hero because I think you mentioned that in like as early as season one, where yeah. I have this thing about Jamie Lannister, and it's I can probably start talking about it now, which is that. I believe that Jamie Lannister thinks he's the main character of Game of Thrones. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think that for all of his good sides and his bad sides, that's his defining feature, which is that he thinks he's the main character in whatever story he's got in his head. And 
regardless of whether that yes. makes him do good things or bad things, I think it's his main motivator. And I am endlessly curious to get your perspectives on various things that he does and the way that he behaves. And now that I've now that that's out there, and now that you you have observed it independently of me mentioning it, now that we're both on the same mm. page, uh, it's going to be great watching Jamie going forward. <laughs> Oh no, I'm I'm excited and worried by that prospect because <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, given what we've seen of Jamie so far, that could mean so many things. But then the River Run stuff also goes hmm. the way of Marine. I just think that the, but he's my lord, my lord, is just like, have we <sighs> wandered onto a Monty Python sketch here? Blackadder, you mean? Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, it just. I don't know. It just there's something about it that just I get that they're trying to highlight how stupid it is that you have to just follow someone's command even when you know that they don't have their best your best interests at heart. Mm. But then where it leads, like everything that happens on paper, Edmure making yeah. sure that Blackfish can surrender the castle, Blackfish deciding to go down with his ship instead of escaping with Brienne and escaping with Podrick and stuff like that and then deciding to have the blackfish killed off screen because then it kind of you know it keeps the aura of the man to the to the viewer mm. yeah, I, I get all of that but it's just so corny it's so corny and game of thrones does corn and i'm not against corn but i don't think this is the right i don't think they judge this well the he's my lord my lord nonsense the, the blackfish going I haven't had a good sword fight in years. I expect to make a dumb fool of myself. And I'm like, what TV yeah. show is this? What TV show is this? Just have it mm. be more despondent. Like, it, this is miserable. This is a guy choosing his own death over just escaping in a boat. Like, I understand that it's a feudal system and that people have strange honor codes in this Game of Thrones world, whatever. But, oh, mm. God, it's like, no, I'd rather not help my niece in the battle for Winterfell or whatever. I'd rather just go and die in a sword fight up these stairs because fuck it. For no reason, Why not? yeah. Like, and I don't mind that, you know, I'm not inside the guy's mind. I don't, yeah, it, I, I think there's enough in Blackfish's character to suggest that he would rather go, he'd rather die in his own castle than retreat. That's fine, but it's just the whole, oh, it's like they've ripped lines out of some cheesy action, like, oh, you'll serve Sansa far better than I ever could. Go on without me. Um, <laughs> It just yeah yeah um, they did one of those deaths earlier this season which was uh, Leaf in the door which feels like a very long time ago right now but yeah it is done a lot better in that episode because it's done very silently and yeah it's kind of uh, the last of a species apologizing for a massive mistake that they made by creating what they're running is, from. Is- yeah, it's that kind of book ending of it, you know. Um, she she's killed by the monsters she created. Yeah, exactly. Whereas this is just, I get the whole. I'm not against the guy going down with his ship. That makes sense. But yeah, the lines, the dialogue, it's not cool. I just yeah, not into it. Mm. What about you? I mean, how do you feel about the actual door opening itself? Because um, I, I wanted to. Uh, paraphrase Sarah Hughes, the late great Sarah Hughes from The Guardian, who says um, he was only actually the Lord for a few weeks between his father's death and the Red Wedding. He's since been held captive for years and 
these men have been holding out against Freys and now Lannisters for some time under the Blackfish's command. You'd think they'd have a bit more loyalty to Blackfish than this guy who's just shown up again after a few years of being missing, possibly presumed dead. Hmm. And especially when you've got Jamie looking on in the distance and his Lannister fleet. What I will I don't say... Know, Go on. What I will say is that... Okay, so I, I don't really look at stories in that way. I'm more like, yeah, okay, they they, they go with Edmure's command, that's fine. Right, like, I'm, I, okay. But I think this is the one area of season six where... I mean, I love the pace of season six, don't get me wrong, but I think mm. this is the one moment where they needed an extra episode with this storyline. I think an entire yeah. episode based around the quandary that is there in the air when Edmure's standing at the drawbridge where the men slowly realise that Edmure's the one that they should be following. And even though the Blackfish is someone they're more loyal to, Edmure does have the right of, you know, he has the final say. And they realise it across the course of the scene, but I feel like an episode would have been better served with that kind of, sudden change in psychology amongst the Tully soldiers would have been better served with a bit more time and another scene. It feels like there's a little bit of connective tissue missing there. On paper, I think it's necessary because the show is so big and it has to head towards an end game. And in order to head towards an end game, I think they have to cut corners. And I think one of these corners is just that the Lannisters get river run. We can stop focusing on the Riverlands now all of the guys in the Tully army just go back home because they're tired of war. They've been sieged up in a castle for fucking ages. They just want to see their wives and children and parents and husbands and things like that. You know, they, they just want to go back to their families. Yeah. And I can get around that. But yeah, I think Sarah was right. And you are also right to pick that out, that it feels a little convenient and a little contrived and... I'm willing to forgive the show that a little bit because if you didn't cut corners occasionally, you would end up where George R. R. Martin is. And you can't do that in a world of TV. You can barely get away with it in a world of books. Um, but yeah, mm. it feels a little rushed to me. A little bit rushed. The company's moving on to Pentos soon. You should come with us. I can't. Why not? Got a feeling you'd be good at this sort of work. And besides, we need a new actress. I don't think I could remember all of the lines. Come with us. What's left for you here? You wouldn't be safe. Not while she's looking for me. Who? She doesn't have a name. Where will you go? Essos is east and Westeros is west. But what's west of Westeros? In Bravos, Lady Crane discovers Arya injured and bleeding, and she takes Arya back to her apartment and repairs Arya's wounds, and allows her to spend the night there. The next morning, the waif, that's uh, she's wearing a different disguise this time, tracks them both down. She kills Lady Crane and chases Arya along the streets of Bravos, and a lengthy, chaotic chase ensues, and Arya's wounds begin to open up again. The waif follows Arya to her hideout, where Arya extinguishes a candle with needle, and plunges the room into darkness. And then we find out, as Jack and Hagar walks through the Hall of Faces, that the Waif's face has been added to the wall, and not Arya's. And then he turns around to discover Arya holding him at sword point, 
and he congratulates her for becoming no one. But Aya states her own name instead and declares that she is going home. So, you're a first-time watcher, Lizzie. Yes, I am, yeah. What do you make of... Well, what's your interpretation of this whole thing? <laughs> what's my interpretation? What kind of question is that? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, what wh- what do you think happens? Like, why why do you think Aya is no one? And... I yeah. Well, I just thought it was like a test. It was um, Jack and sort of playing them off against each other to determine who is his, I don't know, his successor or his prodigy. I don't know. You, you know what I mean? Like his, mm. his understudy. Yeah. And so he's just been, He's he likes them both, but only one can be the true, the, fucking hell, the true no one. Yeah. And, you know, Arya won, I guess. And now she's yeah. going home. It's... That I mean, that's the show's version, I think. But mm. yeah, I wouldn't have done it this way. Uh, no. Uh, to this day, I have no idea why Aya is no one. I well, why did uh, I wh- don't get it? Uh, why did she even go back? I thought we were beyond that point with her having left in the first place. I I think they realized at some point that they could end this storyline by having Aya saying. A girl is Arya Stark of Winterfell and I'm going home. And they've just written towards that line. (laughs) They've moved everything around so that they can get to that line. Which is not an offence in itself. But um, I don't understand to this day why Arya is no one. If anyone's listening to this and has an interpretation (laughs) of why, then feel free. I'm going to leave a question open on this episode like I did for one last season. Just just write in and just explain to me why you think that Aya is made no one. Is it because it's a test and Aya passed? Is it because Jacken is thinking on his feet because Aya's got a sword pressed to his chest? Is it something else? Let me know. My interpretation of this is that all you're supposed to take away from this is Aya went to cool assassin training camp and she got some cool got some cool skills. And now she's just <laughs> heading home to Westeros to yeah. do some cool assassin shit, probably. Who knows? Like, that's... Yay. yeah. So, right. So, but, but before we get to that, right. So, I like Lady Crane's speech, and I like that it is a, it, well. it's a nice touch that she's taken on Aya's advice to improve mm-hmm. that speech and make it better. I like that... Arya and Lady Crane are together again. It's a nice character scene between two people who are, I think, ultimately at heart, they are explorers. They want, you know, Mm -hmm. Lady Crane wants to explore other characters. Arya wants to explore as much of the world as she possibly can. This whole thing of what's west of Westeros, Arya getting a rare chance to be herself around a mother figure for once as opposed to a father figure. Yeah, that's true. But you could have achieved exactly the same result, which is Lady Crane's dead and the waif is chasing Arya through the streets without the cliffhanger last week. Just have Aya run to Lady Crane's apartment. They can have the same conversation without the stabbing. Just, yeah, what's that's true. the point? Like, Aya's wounds just get stitched up, so cliffhanger's dealt with there, <laughs> and they just have the same conversation that they would have had anyway. It's just that Aya occasionally groans, moves uncomfortably, and drinks some nasty soup. And we find out that Lady Crane used to stab all of her boyfriends... And then stitch them up again, which, whatever, like, that's, a, a, mm. it's a piece of character information that does not enhance 
I uh, it does not enhance Lady Crane's character much beyond the fact that like no, oh, it never well, comes up again. No, it's a backstory. I've done that awful thing again where I've like rewritten how I thought this scene was going to go, how I thought this ending would happen. How did you think it would go? So the way they built this up, I was convinced that Lady Crane was going to be the one to take out the waif. Okay. You know, in that in that scene with her and Arya, like you mentioned, she notes having taken revenge on Bianca and also how she's used to stitching the wounds of former lovers whom she would fight with. Yeah. So we get the sense that Lady Crane is someone who can defend herself if need be. Yeah, she's handy. So based on yeah. that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I assumed that the Waif would find Arya and they'd have like a final showdown. And just as it looks like the Waif is about to land the killing blow, Lady Crane would, well, kill the Waif. And, um, you know, Arya and Lady Crane would flee together with the acting troupe. And they'd go, I don't know, somewhere else. Hmm. But instead, they just take her out off screen. No, not off screen. You see, well, she is taken out off screen, but, then but you, you see, see her, her body, mangled yeah. corpse. Yeah, yeah. And then you get this bloody contrived chase scene, which doesn't fit the tone of the series, let alone the episode. Yeah. And, like, don't get me wrong, the Waif is an intimidating character, but I feel like it works better when there's a sense of, like, mystery and unpredictability rather than... A young woman with a shit-eating smirk running after a much smaller foe like she's a Terminator. It doesn't make sense. No. It's really fucking weird. And, like... And I guess, like, after the chase scene, like, okay, fine, the wife is the Terminator, whatever. Like, Yeah. I was having trouble tracking her motivations. Like, why does she hate Arya so much? Like, I'm, I was thinking back. Mm. Why does she... Is it jealousy and like okay that's fine but then she was no good at being no one either but she never yeah. had a name and she was better at the game of faces so like if Aya and the waif were supposed i think if i it's go back all the way to season five if Aya and the waif were ever truly supposed to be equals that jack and hagar was testing have them arrive yeah. there at the same time yeah, exactly. Don't have yeah. the waif already there, an established person at the House of Black and White, if Jacken is going to suddenly go, actually, no, I want you to compete against each other. Like, it was... The waif was like teacher's pet, and Aya had to gain Jacken's approval for basically all of season five. And then even at the end of season yeah. five, the waif was involved in Aya's blinding. And then Jacken has presumably sent the waif to train Aya <laughs> with the staffs, which means that he kind of sees the waif as, like, a right-hand... You know, second in command, like that sort of thing. But then apparently, no, it was a test for both of them to try and become no one. And because the wife gave in to her personal <laughs> grievances, she's not no one. Because I thought the whole thing about no one was losing your sense of identity. It was to become no yeah. one so yeah. that you could become anyone. But mm. Aya has decided that she doesn't want to become no one to become anyone. She wants to just be herself. She wants to be someone. She wants to be someone, which is the opposite of... No one. <laughs> so then I think back to season two, which is when Jacken gives her the coin and says, come to Bravos and you can complete your little list. Which makes me think that the whole time Jacken had no interest in Aya becoming no one. He just wanted her to become a cool assassin who could finish her list because he took a personal shine to her. But then that would make him someone. Which... Yeah. So I have no fucking clue. I just... I... It's just one of my least favourite ends to a storyline in the whole show. It just doesn't make any sense to me. 
all these years yeah. later, it just doesn't track. And so I think it pays off eventually. I think the show has a bumpy road with Aya from like season f- like seasons one to four. I think she's dynamite. She's my favorite character. Mm. Between season five and the end of her story, whether that's the end of the show or whether it's not, whether whether the end of her story is before or at the end of the show, it's mumbled and fumbled slightly yeah. from from yeah. that, from season five to the end of her story. It's just a bit. I think I think they just dropped the ball a little bit. It pays off eventually. All of the assassin shit. I think like, and I think that's the takeaway, which is that. Arya had to be out of the way for a bit, and this is how they were going to do it. And mm. I, th- I feel sympathy for them because they were clearly building to something that they were hoping, you know, something that would be explained by the books, and they could just follow the books and follow mm-hmm. the book material. But then the sixth book hasn't arrived, and so they've had to basically improvise, and they've had to start yeah. writing yeah. a story that they never expected to write. They signed up to adapt not to write. And I will always defend them on that. And I think that when they're producing quality as good as we've had in season six and parts of season five, which were original storylines, then I I think that, you know, that they really deserve to be commended. But for this, I can't, I can't defend them. It just doesn't make any sense. I, if someone wants to offer an interpretation where it's like becoming no one doesn't mean becoming no one. It means becoming who you want to be or something like that then fine but and yeah i'm sure if you spend like five minutes on reddit you can find 20 of them but well the problem that a lot of people had with this episode at the time which is that okay so a lot of fans of tv shows and stuff seem to think that their theories are better than what actually happens in the show of course yeah. you'll see this more and more as, as we go through the show where there will be things that happen where people on Reddit are like, oh, well, this fan fiction on YouTube's well better. And then you go and listen to the fan fiction on YouTube and it's fucking bullshit. And it would have been yeah. worse and more embarrassing if, if the creators had gone down that road. But I think that this is one of those occasions where people's ideas for what was happening just turned out to be a little better than what was actually going on. I think this is a storyline that really actually kind of suffers from being simplified. I think the first half of the season, up to and including the play, was magnificent. Mm-hmm. Because it yeah, yeah, agree, got rid yeah. of all the complicated shit that made the end of season five of I's storyline a bit of a, a damp squib and a bit confusing. But then since the play, and they realise they have to wrap it up, uh, don't think they've stuck the don't think they've stuck the landing, really. No, not at all. And so all of the stuff that was calling Aya to Bravos, Sirio Pharrell, Jack and Hagar, like, in the end, maybe she had to go to Bravos to realise that she didn't need to stay there. May- but I don't know if that really tracks or feels good emotionally, mm, to be honest. Yes, it's not uh, It's not a satisfying payoff for that, no. I don't think. Do you have anything else to say about Bravos or the episode itself? Not really. I'm sure you have a lot, but I'm I'm just kind of exhausted by even talking about this stuff. Yeah, it's well. The thing is, it's over. Like the the uh, the blind fighting had a payoff in the end, I suppose. Like you know, fighting in the dark and all of that. Yeah, but yeah, it 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 ends in a funny place, but it's over. I uh. 
never returns to Bravos in the show. I, I can say that much. Um, so right, okay, yeah. Um, okay, so what is your favourite line from this week? A really simple one from Cersei. I choose violence. Okay, yeah, okay, Pretty yeah, worse. yeah, Fine. yeah. I think for you know, you get the you pick the uh, QI obvious answer, and I think of it's course. actually the right answer. There. Yeah. Um, who's your loser this week? Uh, don't know the wave. Yeah, the wave. Um, yeah, why not? Gone. <laughs> added added to the hall of faces. So uh, yeah, bye. That's, that's that. Yes, nice the um, the faceless men done. The wave yes. done. So yes. yeah, they're done. Uh, who's your winner? Who's your winner? Um, there was a couple of names in the hat, but I think just talking about it, then I'm going to go with Lady Crane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stitches wounds and includes yeah, desire um, to explore, and yeah, I yeah. I can see that. Yeah, she had a really interesting backstory. It's just a shame we never got more of it. You know, we never nothing was ever done with it. Oh well. Never mind. Oh, well, and never mind, indeed. So, we'll be back next week for Season 6, Episode 9, Battle of the Bastards. I'm sure that everyone who's already seen the show will be eager for us to upload that, and don't worry, we will be trying our hardest to get that to you as fast as we can. Absolutely. We will see you for that one. Speak to you very soon. See ya.